You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on Ibn Battuta, a Moroccan Berber explorer who traveled throughout the Islamic world in the 14th century. Last time, we left Ibn Battuta in Mecca, just like we had done after our first episode. Only this time, he had completed his second Hajj instead of his first. Our only note for today is simple. Go to explorerspodcast.com to find a map of Ibn Battuta's adventures. That is it for notes. The year was 1327. Ibn Battuta stayed in Mecca, where he recovered his health. He had been struck with a severe case of dysentery on the road from Baghdad to Mecca, and he was weak and exhausted when he arrived to participate in his second Hajj. He had been able to complete the pilgrimage, but it had been taxing. He had even used a horse to complete some of the more strenuous tasks of the Hajj, but in the end, he had done it. Now he needed some time to recuperate. That downtime would either be one year or three, Ibn Battuta's writings are contradictory on this point, as his chronology gets messed up, so we can't say for sure. However, I would be surprised if a young Ibn Battuta stayed three years in any one single place. He just doesn't seem the type to do so, although perhaps health issues kept him in this place for that time. No matter, while in Mecca, Ibn Battuta likely spent some time studying and attending lectures. He was, we should remember, a Qadi, a judge of Islamic law, a young and experienced one, mind you, but still a respected scholar. In Mecca, students would gather around the center of the great mosque, the teacher always facing the Kaaba. People would gather around the lecturer, coming and going as desired. Regarding education, I want to note that Ibn Battuta, while he was eager to learn and a Qadi, he was not super devoted to the profession. Author Rossi Dunn, in his book on our explorer, says, quote, The depth of his education should not, of course, be overstated. He never became the jurist of first rank. End quote. Anyhow, whether one or three years, Ibn Battuta departed Mecca in the fall of 1328 or 1330. He traveled with a Hajj caravan heading west from Mecca to the port of Jeddah on the Red Sea. After that, he planned on going to Yemen. From there, he had options, including East Africa and India. No matter, for now, his goal was to head south to Yemen, which is on the southwestern corner of the Arabian Peninsula. It would have been a natural jumping-off point to go to India or Africa. For his journey, Ibn Battuta avoided the boats of the Hajj travelers, which were packed with people and camels and a million other things. Instead, he took a jalba, which was a small two-masted ship. A jalba was typically made of teak wood, the planks stitched together with coconut or palm fiber. There were no nails used. These were not particularly sound boats. The key was to have expert sailors to operate them. 
Ibn Battuta had never been on a sea voyage up to this point, and he admitted that he was terrified of the experience. Now, the Red Sea offered all sorts of dangers to any ship, mainly due to the coral reefs and rocks that dotted the shores. Bandits would line up on the coast and wait for the ships to strike one of these reefs, forcing everyone to abandon ship and struggle to shore. The bandits would then rob and often kill the survivors. All of this aside, the biggest issue for Ibn Battuta was the winds. This time of year, traveling south down the Red Sea was not easy due to unfavorable winds. He wrote, quote, We traveled on the sea with a favoring wind for two days, but thereafter the wind changed and drove us off the course which we had intended. The waves of the sea entered in amongst us in the vessel, and the passengers felt grievously sick. End quote. The boat was ultimately driven west, to the opposite side of the Red Sea, and forced ashore. Thankfully, there were no bandits awaiting them. Instead, the locals came with camels and rented them to the travelers to take them south. And thus Ibn Battuta went overland to the port of Suakin, where he again boarded another Jalba. After six days at sea, the boat managed to reach the eastern shore of the Red Sea at the district of Hali, which was advantageous because it turned out that while in Mecca, Ibn Battuta had struck up a friendship with the local ruler of the area, and he would thus spend several days as the man's guest. This is a great example about how all those connections Ibn Battuta had cultivated were paying off. From there, it was another sea voyage to the kingdom of Yemen. Regarding Yemen, it is, even today, almost an afterthought when you look at a map of the Middle East. The Arabian Peninsula is dominated physically by Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's the big spot on the map when you look at it. Yemen, however, is in a critical location. It has been at the crossroads of civilization for 3,000 years. And that's because it controls the traffic into and out of the Red Sea. This is one of the most important ports along the trade route between East and West. In Ibn Battuta's time, Yemen was an independent kingdom, just like it is today. The rulers were of Kurdish and Turkish origin. They had invaded the area from Egypt in the 12th century and set up their own kingdom. The region is a land of geographical extremes. In the west, it's mountainous and gets rains from the monsoons. The east is a desert. The kingdom had three major inland cities, Zabid in the western lowlands, Sinai in the mountains, and Taiz in the southern highlands. The latter was the capital of the Razulid dynasty, the rulers of Yemen. The cities formed a triangle in the western part of the kingdom. The sultan of Yemen was Malik Mujahid Nur al-Din Ali. He was the fifth sultan in the Razulid line. The other city of note in Yemen was the port of Aden, which we will talk about in a minute. Anyhow, Ibn Battuta landed on the Yemeni coast and then went overland about 30 miles or 50 kilometers to Zabid. He then sort of just wanders going from town to town, visiting wherever and whoever strikes his fancy. Despite many of these locations being in the mountains, Ibn Battuta found the cities quite cosmopolitan. This is due to the kingdom being flush with cash and an educated populace. As usual, Ibn Battuta gravitated to the scholars and important officials wherever he went. The area had a share of Shia-Sunni tribal tensions, and Ibn Battuta can't help but take the Shia Muslims to task for what he saw as their shortcomings. For the most part, Ibn Battuta liked the people he met, with the exception of those in Taiz, which was the sultan's home. He found the people there pushy, rude, and overbearing. However, he was introduced to the sultan. Ibn Battuta detailed that ceremony. All around there were soldiers armed with swords, shields, and bows. The most important guests were escorted to meet the sultan first. Food and refreshments were served. The more important the person, the better the food. Ibn Battuta says that he was brought up onto a carpeted platform, decorated with silken fabrics, and introduced the sultan by the local Qadi, saluting the king by touching the ground with an index finger and saying, May God prolong thy majesty. 
The Yemeni king quizzed him about his homeland, Morocco, and the lands he had visited, including Persia and Egypt. Ibn Battuta departed with the sultan's blessing, plus a fine horse and letters of introduction, the latter to help him obtain lodging. After Taiz, Ibn Battuta states that he went to Sané in the mountains, but that's one of those probably-not-really moments. In reality, he likely headed directly for Aden. Aden was one of the most important and prosperous ports in all of Asia, Africa, or Europe. Nearly every ship coming into or out of the Red Sea stopped in Aden. It is surrounded by mountains and only approached by the sea. Ibn Battuta states nearly a dozen Indian ports that regularly sailed to Aden. These merchants carried spices, iron, steel, brass, bronze, silk, cotton, pearls, beads, shoes, Chinese porcelain, ivory, fruit, and timber. This meant lots and lots of money. In Aden, Ibn Battuta explored the prosperous city, staying with the rich merchant. He then decided to head to Africa. With that in mind, I want to talk a bit about the Arab colonies on the east coast of Africa, plus the maritime trade that dominated this region. First, one thing I want to mention about Ibn Battuta's upcoming jaunts off to Africa is that he will be moving from the center to the fringe of the Islamic world. In all the place he had been to in his life up to this point, Islam was the crucial factor that unified the people around him. His religion and Sharia law was the legal and moral basis for political, family, and social relationships. Of course, he had met some Christians and Jews in his life, but they would have been very much in the minority amongst the population. But that will not always be the case going forward. He will be amongst Muslims, but Ibn Battuta was going to be introduced to a diversity of languages and cultures that he had never experienced before. In fact, Islam will, in some of the Indian Ocean cities and lands, be a minority religion. The practice of Islam will be heavily concentrated in the coastal towns. Muslim merchants and traders had ventured to the areas of East Africa, where they had no Sharia law to guide them or fall back on. Instead, they will have to work with other cultures, many of whom were not Muslims. And you know what? They were successful. Muslim colonies sprung up all along the East African coast and thrived. Many of these merchants married and intermingled with the locals. And in time, many of the locals became Muslims. This meant you would have people speaking Bantu and Swahili and a hundred other languages right next to Persian and Arabic. Now, regarding the region of East Africa that was on Ibn Battuta's agenda, it covers what today is Somalia, Kenya, and Tanzania. This includes the cities of Zela, Mogadishu, Mombasa, Zanzibar, and Kilwa. Muslim traders and merchants had come to these places in the past few centuries, partnering with the local people to obtain goods from the interior. All of this was possible because of innovations in sailing by Arab navigators. They were extremely advanced. One aspect of this was technical in nature. Their lateen rigged ships allowed a vessel to sail in just about any direction. Sometimes it was slow going, but at least it was progress. The lateen sails, which are triangular, would be adopted a hundred plus years later by the Portuguese, allowing them to kick off the age of discovery. Another innovative aspect of Arab navigators was their mastering of the winds. This, more than anything, allowed them to venture successfully so far across the ocean. The Arab traders of the era understood when and where the monsoon season was going to take place. This allowed them to know the best time to go from Africa to Asia and Arabia across the Indian Ocean. Sailing was a dangerous game, and understanding the seasonal rhythm of the winds of the Arabian Sea was critical. By the way, the Arabian Sea is the water between Africa and India. The winds of this region were more predictable than, say, the Mediterranean Sea. This allowed Arab traders to go hundreds, even thousands of miles across open water with confidence that they would reach their destination. And thus, this led Arab merchants to Africa. This gave them a massive new market to send their many trade goods. 
In exchange, Africa offered a wealth of opportunities, but probably nothing was more important than gold, ivory, and slaves. So why did Ibn Battuta elect to go to Africa instead of India or wherever? Well, we really just don't know. Perhaps he simply saw an opportunity and took it. Plus, he knew that if he went down the east coast of Africa, he could eventually catch the Indian Ocean monsoons that would take him back to Arabia. No matter, after his time in Aden, Ibn Battuta took a ship across the Gulf of Aden, heading for Zela on the coast of Somalia. The ship was carrying trade goods, including glass beads, Chinese porcelain, silk, glassware, books, paper, pottery, and tools. They would return with ivory, gold, skins, furs, rice, and slaves. Ibn Battuta does not say anything about the size or design of the ship that he sailed on, but it was likely a fairly large trading dhow. There might have been a small cabin, but most likely he would have made do living on the deck amongst the crew and cargo. By the way, Ibn Battuta rarely talks in depth about the ships that he takes. He was clearly not a sailor. Author Rossi e. Dunn, in his book on Ibn Battuta and his travels, writes, quote, Although Ibn Battuta logged thousands of miles at sea in the course of his adventures, the Rihala is a disappointing record of 14th century shipbuilding and seamanship. Since he presumably had no sailing experience in early life, and his Tangierian upbringing was no doubt remote from the workaday world of the port, he was excusably indifferent to the rudiments of nautical technology. He is far better at recalling the characteristics of port towns and the pious personages inhabiting them than the humdrum details of navigation and life at sea. End quote. The city of Zela was a major port for goods coming and going into the Christian kingdom of Ethiopia. It was large and prosperous. Ibn Battuta only spent one night in the city, calling it, quote, the dirtiest, most disagreeable, and most stinking town in the world, end quote. The smell was because of the large fish and meat markets. Ibn Battuta's boat then pressed east into the Gulf of Aden, going slowly due to strong winds, but eventually rounding the Horn of Africa and pushing south down the eastern coast, which was dominated by a desolate Somali desert. The destination was Mogadishu, which was probably the busiest and richest port in East Africa. Arab traders had first come to the city around 900, and their presence had quickly grown as the city became a major trade center. When Ibn Battuta arrived, he found a mix of African and Middle Eastern peoples. He would have heard Persian, Arabic, Somali, Swahili, and Bantu being spoken. And his visit provides a great snapshot into the world of the merchants and traders, both African and Arab, of this time. Once Ibn Battuta's ship came into the harbor, they were quickly approached by a multitude of smaller boats. Men boarded the ship, bringing platters of food to the merchants. If a merchant took the platter, he was thus obliged to accept the man as his broker. The merchant was now under the protection of the broker, whose job it was to hammer out deals for the merchant's goods with the local sellers. The broker got a cut of the sales for his duties. In some cases, the merchants were already well-established and had their own operation set up in the city. This allowed them to bypass these brokers. As for Ibn Battuta, he was not a merchant, but a faqih, a scholar versed in Islamic law. He was thus passed on to the representatives of the city's chief qadi. Ibn Battuta was taken to the place of the local ruler, a man named Abu Bakr. He was treated with respect and fed three large meals each day. On the fourth day, he was introduced to Abu Bakr ibn Sheikh Umar, who held the title of Sharif, which means he was recognized as a direct descendant of Muhammad. The man had a dark complexion, likely as his descendants had intermarried with the local Africans. His native tongue was Somali, but he spoke fluent Arabic. Ibn Battuta notes the sultan had a large retinue of ministers, called viziers. These included legal experts, generals, royal eunuchs, and many other officials. Ibn Battuta described the pomp and ceremony of meeting with the sultan, saying, quote, 
All of the people walked barefoot, and there were raised over his head four canopies of colored silk, and on top of each canopy was the fire of a bird in gold. His clothes that day were a robe of green Jerusalem stuff, and underneath it, fine loose robes of Egypt. He was dressed with a wrapper of silk and turbaned with a large turban. Before him, drums and trumpets and pipers were played. The emirs of the soldiers were before him. The Qadi, the Faki, and the Sharifs were with him. He entered the council room in that order. The viziers, emirs, and commanders of the soldiers sat down there in the audience chamber. End quote. By the way, we have run into several people named Abu Bakr in our story. The reason for this is that Abu Bakr was a close companion of Muhammad, and on the death of the latter, it was Abu Bakr who took up the position of Caliph, the leader of Islam. Now, some people didn't accept this, and this led to the formation of the two branches of Islam, Shiism and Sunnism. Abu Bakr would lead the Sunnis. Because of this, the name holds a revered place in the Sunni Muslim world. After a week or two in Mogadishu, Ibn Battuta continued south, again by boat. As he moved down the coast, the deserts gave way to tangled swamps and lush mangrove forests. At the border of modern-day Somalia and Kenya, Ibn Battuta would have crossed the equator. While he was accustomed to hot temperatures, it's unlikely he had ever endured the humidity of the tropics. Next on the agenda was Mombasa, about 600 miles, or 1,000 kilometers, from Mogadishu. The town was modest in size at this time, but it would later become a powerhouse commercial center. Not far from Mombasa was the island of Zanzibar. It was a small but growing city, and would one day emerge as one of the great commercial centers on the eastern coast of Africa. Another thing that Ibn Battuta would have seen all along the African coast was the growth of Islam amongst the local peoples. The next port of call was a few days later at Kiowa, the terminus of Ibn Battuta's southerly voyage, as there were no Arab settlements further south. The city is on an island, offering it protection from attack. Kiowa, which is in present-day Tanzania, was the center of gold trade on the East African coast, making it prosperous. Ibn Battuta said the wealthy citizens wore silk and cotton clothing and ate off of Chinese porcelain. He also said they had indoor plumbing. Of the city, Ibn Battuta said it was, quote, one of the finest and most beautifully built towns, end quote. The city was famed for its dome and vaulted mosque, which was made of coral stone, the largest of its kind in the world. Ibn Battuta would attend services at the mosque. By the way, the great mosque of Kiowa would collapse in an earthquake not long after Ibn Battuta's visit. So, while in Kiowa, Ibn Battuta would meet the city's powerful sultan, Al-Hassan Ibn Suleiman, at his stone palace, located at the highest point on the island. He praised the sultan for his pious and generous nature. The sultan would quiz Ibn Battuta about his homeland and the places he had visited on his travels. By the way, I read something about these Arab colonies on the African coast that I found interesting. One author described them as something akin to the Italian city-states of the same era. These were independent maritime realms. They were key trade brokers in the region and thus were powerful and influential. They competed against one another, yet at the same time they were Arabs with similar roots. Many of these rulers were of Yemeni origin. And of course, they were Muslims. And so it was now March of 1329 or 1331, and there was no place left for Ibn Battuta to go unless he wanted to venture out of the Arab world, which wasn't going to happen. So he made plans to head back to Arabia. Now, there are two times a year where the winds blew from East Central Africa to Arabia, and that was at the beginning and the end of the monsoon season. That meant that Ibn Battuta's next chance to sail was only a few weeks away, in late March or early April. Thus, he made preparations for his return to the Middle East. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. When Ibn Battuta set sail from Kilwa for Arabia in April of 1329 or 1331, he had before him a four to five week voyage. He makes no comment in his book about the return journey other than the destination, Dofar, which is located in modern day Oman on the southeast corner of the Arabian Peninsula. It would have been a long voyage, but the experienced Arab navigators knew their business, and Ibn Battuta found himself back in Arabia in early May. Dofar was an important city on the trade route going from Asia to the Red Sea. It was also famed for its fine horses, as well as an exporter of frankincense, an aromatic resin used as incense. It was also used in medicines, perfumes, and oils. In fact, the region around Dofar was called the Incense Coast. The city was well known as a key trade center, with famed Venetian traveler Marco Polo singing the region's praises, writing, quote, Dofar is a great and noble and fine city, end quote. The monsoon rains made the area around Dofar green and vibrant. Ibn Battuta was stuck there for a spell, not a bad place to spend the summer. He hung out, met with the local scholars, and no doubt cultivated some relationships in the process. Eventually, he took a small coastal trader east, stopping at various small ports along the way. He describes his life on the boat, eating fish, dates, and bread. He was appalled when the crew captured some seabirds and didn't slit their throats as prescribed by the Koran. He thus avoided eating the birds and hanging around with the impious sailors. Eventually, Ibn Battuta reached the port of Sur at the entrance of the Gulf of Oman. The Gulf of Oman leads into the Persian Gulf, so this was an important area. A short way past Sur, Ibn Battuta and another traveler, an Indian scholar named Kidru, decided to depart their ship when it had to stop for some business. Rather than just hang out on the ship, the two men decided to walk to the nearby port of Kalhat, just a few hours up the coast by foot. They even hired one of the sailors to guide them. The plan was to hook back up with the ship in Kalhat. Well, on the walk to the city, Ibn Battuta became convinced that the sailor was up to no good. He feared the man was going to kill him and his friend and steal their stuff. And Ibn Battuta was not entirely wrong, although the sailor wasn't trying to kill him. 
Instead, he just wanted to rob the two men. Ibn Battuta, who carried with him a spear, sniffed out the plot and thwarted the robbery. However, by this time, it was getting dark and the men were lost, and Ibn Battuta saw other men lurking in the hills. Thus, he and his friend hunkered down for the night, hiding amongst the rocks and dunes until dawn. Ibn Battuta stayed awake all night, on guard. The next morning, Ibn Battuta and his friend arrived at the city gate, tired and thirsty and their feet swollen. Due to their bedraggled nature, the guards refused to let them enter without going before the city's governor to explain who they were and what they were doing lurking outside the city walls. And that was a good thing for Ibn Battuta, because as we have seen, he has a way with people. And it wasn't long before he and the governor were best buddies. Ibn Battuta said, quote, I stayed with him for six days, during which I was powerless to rise to my feet because of the pains that they had sustained. End quote. Now, from Callhat, well, things get a little weird. And that's because Ibn Battuta's story gets jumbled and confused. There are time leaps, the route zigs and zags in odd ways, stuff like that. I do want to mention one thing about Ibn Battuta's writings that is, at times, frustrating. In all of his travels, he goes to some locations on multiple occasions, and it appears that he at times jumbles up these visits. This might be on purpose or a simple mistake on his part, or it might be the mistake of the man transcribing Ibn Battuta's oral descriptions. We can't forget that Ibn Battuta didn't physically write down his story. A scribe, Ibn Jusay, did that. And thus, it might be a mistake of the scribe. No matter, it's not a huge deal, but I want to tell you about it as it might explain the confused narrative that occasionally creeps into our story. As always, I will do my best to explain things as clearly as possible. So, from Kalhat, Ibn Battuta decided to travel with a caravan to the northwest into the Hajar Mountains. This was the rugged interior of Oman. The destination was the inland town of Nizwa. Nizwa is one of the oldest cities in Oman and was a center of learning and trade. It was also a key link in the overland trade between Dofar, where Ibn Battuta had been earlier that year, and the port of Muscat, just 140 miles to the north on the Gulf of Oman. It's not clear if Ibn Battuta gets to Muscat, a vital port in the area, but he eventually does return to the coast and crosses over the Gulf of Oman and then to Hormuz. The latter city guards the entrance to the Persian Gulf. Ibn Battuta then goes inland and visits a few places, some quite dangerous. He describes areas filled with bandits and graves all along the roads he traveled. Eventually, he emerged on the eastern shore of the Persian Gulf. Here, he described the pearl fisheries. He then took a boat across the Gulf to Al-Khatif. This is just north of modern-day Bahrain and Qatar. From here, Ibn Battuta set out to the south, where he met a tribal chieftain who was preparing to cross the Arabian Peninsula to Mecca on a Hajj, a journey of some 750 miles or 1,200 kilometers. And you know what? What better thing to do than another Hajj? And so Ibn Battuta saddles up for a long journey across Arabia. The man does not talk much about the long march across Arabia, or even the experiences of his third Hajj. We only know that he reaches Mecca and completes his third pilgrimage. And that, my friends, is where we are going to live Ibn Battuta, just like we left him at the end of our first and second episodes. In our last episode, Ibn Battuta had crossed the Arabian Desert twice, visited all the great cities of Iraq and western Persia, and conducted his second Hajj. This time he visited pretty much the rest of the Arabian Peninsula, including the lands of Yemen and Oman. Plus he had traveled to the far-off Arab colonies on the eastern coast of Africa. Next time, our explorer will head north to the lands around the Black Sea, followed by Asia, including India. And that wraps up things for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I want to remind everyone that you can help out the show by going onto your podcast app, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, 
and give the Explorers a nice rating and review. It doesn't cost you a dime, and I appreciate the support. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows. For those interested in finance, there's the Investors for Beginners podcast, as well as Her Money by Gene Chatsky. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.